Radio Drome. All right, I am here. It is our 75th episode of Radio Drome. Brian is here, correct? Yes, I am. Hooray! And this week, your sidekick of Brad Jones is here as well. Yeah, we'll probably be here for like two minutes until like the sound goes out. Yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about that in a minute. We're going to talk about how Murphy's Law kicked you in the nuts on Tuesday in a minute, Brad. That's true. Someone did throw a copy of the Charles Bronson movie, Murphy's Law, at my junk. <laughs> I was in a lot of pain, but then I was like, oh, sweet, Murphy's Law. It's Bronson. Come on. Unless unless you're a punk, a pimp, or a killer, you got nothing to fear from Charlie. (laughs) Right? Exactly. So let's get the Adam and Eve promo out of the way. AdamandEve.com. Use the promo code DROME, and you get three free DVDs. You get 50% off of a single item. You get free shipping in the United States. And what else do they get, Brian? Put you on the spot. Oh, well, they get a mystery gift, but I don't really know what that is. Ah, good. You're paying attention, boy. (laughs) So, all right, for our 75th episode, we've got an interview that I recorded with James Glickenhouse, but it it was supposed to be Brad and I. Brad, do you want to tell people why you were not there even though you were there? Even though I was there? All right, here's what happened. I'm I'm sitting at the computer, and... I was writing the Sleepaway Camp episode. I had my notes taken for the first half of the movie, and I had, a, a, like, two and a half paragraphs written or something like that. So 6.30 comes along. I'm like, okay, i got to jump on Skype for the James Glickenhouse interview. All right, so I grabbed the headset. I saved the uh, the document, the, the script that I had already written for Sleepaway Camp. I had saved that, so... I go to plug in the uh, headphone jack, and the uh, the USB port is right next to the like the audio jack. So I had accidentally, which I've done before, just accidentally touched the uh, the USB part of it. I didn't jam it in there; it, it just touched. That's it. You know, it touches. Like, okay, I could move it over here a little bit, and and that was it. So the second that it just touched that area, the computer just goes off just completely goes off so i'm pissed off like i didn't hear a pop or anything like that i didn't smell anything funny so i'm like what the hell just happened did it just seriously short circuit or something so i have jillian text josh and i'm i'm pissed because i'm like i swear to god if i have to write the first part of this sleep away camp thing again like uh so uh so anyway we I grab the thing, I grab the folder for Best Buy, I take it to Best Buy, the thing is just not turning on, so I'm I'm just freaking annoyed. So, the, we take it up to the guy, and the guy turns it on, and it turned on just fine. It just got overheated is all. It was just a little overheated. And the fact that it went off directly the second that it touched that that little port is what threw me off but it just coincidentally went off at that at that freaking moment so my document on the first little part of my sleep away camp video was saved the notes weren't which wasn't a huge deal cuz i've seen sleep away camp like a 100 times so i sleep away camp's one of my favorite slasher movies i know sleep away camp so you know i just kind of fast forward like through the first 
half hour that I had gotten notes on and, and, and could remember what, and I could remember what my notes were. So that, that, I mean, it was a pain in the ass, but whatever, it, it could have been worse. So yeah, that's why I'm not in the Glickenhouse thing. And I, I did ask him the questions you said you were going to ask him. Yeah. So you were there in spirit. Well, how big How's is that? his penis? Tell me. Well, I, I cut that part out because he what? asked me to. <laughs> so when you only hear me asking questions when we when we play the interview later, that's why. Brad was there up to the minute beforehand. Yeah, Josh completely just yeah, Josh completely cut me out of the interview. Turns <laughs> out all of my questions were incredibly racist. Aren't they always? <laughs> so why do you why do you even have me in the interviews if you're just gonna cut me out later? You know I'm gonna be racist. <laughs> that's why, because it's fun at the time. <laughs> it's like when I cut out like some of the stuff Irving says in, in the midnight <laughs> screenings videos. <laughs> so Irving will say stuff stuff just to screw with this. He'll say like he'll say like just the most like blatantly freaking offensive stuff just to screw with us and make us laugh. It's a good like, thing. I don't understand what the size of her nose has to do with any of this, Irving. <laughs> it's a good thing Lewis isn't like that, huh? Oh, of course not. No, no, he just says he's going to punch pregnant women in the stomach. Well, how is that racist? (laughs) It was a black baby, Brian. (laughs) Well, she was white. How was I supposed to know? (laughs) Because she was blonde and 300 pounds. (laughs) Wow. This this got a little away from us. That's a good joke. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I will not edit that out. Uh, so, Brian, you want to tell us why you weren't here last week? You like that one, huh? I like that one, because it's oddly accurate. <laughs> no, I I, I just, uh, I wasn't able to be here last week, just had some uh, some family stuff come up, so, yeah, gets in the way sometimes. What the hell was I doing? Oh, was I just, oh yeah, I just wasn't feeling it last week. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you had a bad week last week, let's just leave it, at, we'll it. leave it at that. I had to think about that for a second. What the hell was I doing last week? <laughs> Man, it went Men in Black 3 and something. Oh, yeah, yeah, the other boys went to go see Chernobyl Diaries. Oh, that looks so bad. Oh, they said it sucked. It looked awful. Oh, man, yeah, they said they said it was just crap. Like, it was it was weird. The way they were talking about it, they're describing it like, like it might as well have been a found footage movie, except they just like didn't overdub. They didn't dub in like a cameraman's voice. Like they're talking about it. Like you never really get a good look at the mutants or anything like that. Except apparently there's one that you kind of see that looks like a turtle. <laughs> the, what? The, the movie to me just looked like Hostel meets The Hills Have Eyes. It looked like a Hills Have Eyes. Like I mean, even though it's not found footage, it looked. I mean. The the whole thing is, I guess, handheld, like and stuff like that. Which I mean, I'm not one to talk. I shoot all my movies handheld, but but yeah, this one, I guess, it really did have that kind of feel to it, just without it being found footage. And you know, it it kind of annoys me. It it, it sort of annoys me a little bit in that you know, a pretty creepy movie could be made at Chernobyl. Uh, that's not a bad. I mean, I don't know about the whole like plot of that, but like, looking at it as a setting, looking at Chernobyl as a setting. A horror movie being set there, it is a creepy looking place. With all those abandoned buildings and stuff and that Ferris wheel and everything. Something I think something creepy could be made made out of that. Just 
apparently not that movie. <laughs> well, l- let me ask you guys this, because this is tangentially related because it's by the Paranormal Activity guy. Did either yeah. of you guys see that short-lived ABC series last year, The River? Uh, no, no. No, uh, never did. It was executive produced by Steven Spielberg and the Paranormal Activity guy, starred uh, Bruce Greenwood and Leslie Hope. It the, the whole series was a found footage style series. It was basically a reality show that is following a family down the Amazon as they're looking for their missing the missing father and they encounter zombies and ghosts and this creepy stuff, and it supposedly is really good and really creepy. I've heard people say, whatever you do, do not watch the zombie episode before you go to bed, or you will not sleep. I like Bruce Greenwood. Me too. I just picked it up on DVD, so I have not actually seen the show, but I don't like the found footage aspect, but I'm willing to give it a, a try here. Here's I mean, the... found footage can work. Usually doesn't, though. Yeah, I mean... Any more I can any more I can say that about most horror genres. With with found footage, you know, some of them are still fine. You know, I I've still seen some that are alright, but but yeah, when it goes bad, it goes pretty bad. But you know, I can say the same thing about a lot of modern day horror movies. But yeah, on the one hand, like Chronicle, I really like Chronicle a lot. But then you know, with Chronicle, you get Area Four O Seven found footage movie with dinosaurs. <laughs> well, see, I know that sounds awesome, but it's so not. Well, see, here's the thing that bugged me about the river thing. When I picked it up, the show was canceled after eight episodes. It was scripted for 13. So they didn't yeah. even shoot the last five episodes of the season. And uh-huh. the DVD is the complete first season. Uh, but kind of implies there's a second season, doesn't there? Why not just say yeah, the complete series? The series is canceled. There will never be a second season. Was it put on DVD when maybe there was talks that there would be another season? No, it had already been clearly canceled. The sets had been broken down. Actors had been released, and the DVD just came out this week. And it's like, that, why call it the first season then? You, well, you remember, Brian, that disc of uh, Viva Laughlin that I have? All two <laughs> episodes that aired, and I wrote down Viva Laughlin, the complete series. <laughs> it's actually is no, it's actually actually it isn't even true. I don't have I have the two that aired. I don't have the five that didn't air. I've got I, I've got that with a uh, girls club as well. That David E. Kelly Fox show that was canceled yeah. after two episodes. I've got both of those. I actually have those from review screeners, so they're clean with no logos or anything. And it's like I know there are eight more episodes that they've confirmed were shot. Release the tapes, CBS. But I mean, doesn't that kind of just bother you when it, the complete first season it just why not just call it the complete series? Like when Harsh Realm came out, it was Harsh Realm, the complete series, because they knew there was not going to be any more. Well, that that's one thing that, that really irked me with uh, there were, there was an animated series on MTV some number of years back, uh, Clone High. I've I've, that, I've got all those on tape from back MTV. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, when it you know it was out, it did like a thirteen episode season, and then it was canceled like they they teased that there was going to be a, a season two in like the the last episode but mtv just like that eh, it was on for like a couple episodes cancel it but then years later when they finally got around to releasing the dvds it actually says on it the same way complete first season and i started like looking around like like well hell did they did they make more and i just never heard about it did i just not tune in to wherever they stuck it no it no, they just decided to do that 10 years later, whenever the hell it was they finally got around to releasing it on DVD. Well, they, they kind of did that with, uh, do you guys remember the original 
cast of Cagney and Lacey. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the one where it was Meg Foster, not Time yeah. Daily. Well, obviously that season didn't do too well, and the show didn't start getting good ratings until Tyne Daly joined the cast. So they skipped the Meg Foster season and the original pilot completely, and they just start releasing them on DVD with the Tyne Daly season, and they call it Cagney and Lacey, The True Beginning. And I'm going, what? that is so <laughs> insulting to Meg Foster. Yeah. And, and, I mean, the eight episodes Meg she Foster's, was did, she Meg was, Foster's they were good. Fun. Meg Foster's going to haunt them in her in their sleep with her eyes. Blue eyes. <laughs> yeah. Dude, we met we met Meg Foster one year and uh her oh eyes God, that creepy yeah. in real life? Yeah, yeah, we were at a con. We we were at a con. This was that this was that really crappy con we went to where you couldn't breathe without getting charged. Um <laughs> yeah. so we we went up to Meg Foster. We asked for a picture. They, they uh they couldn't they they couldn't or something like that because we had to buy like a certain amount of items or something like that. But she like you could tell they genuinely felt really bad about it and like it was just whoever was representing the con, whoever was representing them or whatever was just it wasn't it wasn't a good con. But uh, you could tell that they genuinely felt bad about it. But but yes, yeah, standing there two feet away from Meg Foster, who's looking. Right into your soul. <laughs> well, and then she, she she's one of those actresses that yes, I know she played Cagney and she's played a you know like she was the the good deputy in the Oblivion movies and stuff. But oh, stepfather too. But I mean, overall, she plays a villain so good. She's one of those ones where it's like, well, you know, it's it, like in a movie like They Live. Oh God, she betrayed them. Who'd have seen Meg Foster as the betrayer? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, it's almost like then, like like Moon Forty Four. Oh my God, Malcolm McDowell was the villain. Never saw that what? coming. Yeah, that's just, that's just typecasting. That's just blatant typecasting. So did they ever? Okay, so did they did they ever release the Mar- the 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 Meg Foster episodes of Cagney and Lacey? No, only the ti- only the Tyne Daily episodes have been released on DVD. That. Well, they're they're trying to find a good way to release Cagney and Lacey. This season was a pack of lies. Except, the title. except uh, uh, there was one of the one of the like TV Land channels in Canada, something along those lines, showed those those Meg Foster episodes again, and I watched them for the first time in like twenty years, and I'm like, they're actually better than the Tyne Daily episodes. They're they're a lot more Hill Street Blues esque. Yeah, in yeah. those first eight episodes, it's like we're not going to release the seasons of Night Court on DVD until the ones with Marsha Warfield shows up. <laughs> well, yeah, or, or or Marky Post, or Marky Post, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about James Glickenhaus. Obviously, Brad and I are a fan. I don't know where you stand on Glickenhaus, Brian. You know James Glickenhaus's work. Uh, I am suddenly drawing a complete blank. I know the, the Exterminator. Name. Oh, okay, yeah, the oh, Exterminator, yeah. Shakedown, the Protector McBain. with Jackie Chan, McBain. Uh, Slaughter of the Innocents, and he also produced like Maniac Cop, Basket Case two and three, Frankenhooker. Yeah. He's 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 got a very. Now I say this to him in the interview, and he's he's actually a little taken aback. But would you agree that his movies have a very Glickenhaus feel? That even if you miss the first five minutes, so you miss the credits, after like ten minutes of McBain or The Exterminator, you go, "This feels like a Glickenhaus flick." Oh no! I was gonna, yeah, it, it's one of those movies like. His movies, they just have like that certain feel to them. Like, like you know, you're watching like 
a Fincher movie. Like it doesn't like you could have never seen like Seven before at all, but you could you just know like this is a Fincher flick. Oh yeah, and with Glickenhaus, it's like oh man, any minute now the main character is just gonna start walking down the news. I was gonna <laughs> say that, that that's another big thing that even if you didn't know he produced Maniac Cop, now go back and watch that and The Exterminator, and my God, do they feel like they're set in the same universe, don't they? <laughs> Especially, I mean, also aspects of The Exterminator and McBain, because here you have two movies about two guys who become friends during both of them in Vietnam, and then it's years later, something happens to the friend, and you can tell these guys have been really close, something happens to the friend, and then it becomes a revenge story. There's very, there's similar qualities to, to both movies, but they're both really, they're both really, really good flicks. They both do, they both do it very well. Okay, Exterminator has, you know, some key scenes set, like you put it, uh, on the deuce, and so so does, obviously, Frankenhooker and the Basket Case movies and Maniac Cop, and then Shakedown has a giant gunfight and car chase on the deuce. Yeah, yeah. Glickenhouse loved 42nd Street. You can tell that, you can tell that from, uh, when he does the audio commentary on the Exterminator DVD, the opening credits of that movie, or aerial shots over New York City, and in one of the shots, you can see the deuce there, and he starts really lovingly talking about it. It was, it was really, he was, a, that was a very good commentary. He had, re, he had some really good stories in that. Well, and Brad, since you missed the interview, he also says he just did a commentary for McBain. They're going to do a special edition DVD of that. Nice. So he just he just actually recorded it the week before we recorded the interview. I guess I guess I I, <laughs> I did interview him once technically. <laughs> yeah, but only over text and uh, it was over it was over text and it was so brief. Oh my god! Like because he's on he's on Facebook and I wrote to him and I I just asked I was like hey uh uh you know I told him I was a fan and everything and I told him about the site and just asked if I could. Asked if I could interview him. He goes. He goes. Yeah. Send me the qu- send me the questions. But I I, 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 I wasn't. I at first yeah. I wasn't intending on it being a text interview. But I was meaning for it to be audio. But he, when he wrote back about that, I was like, okay, maybe he can only maybe he can only do it like this. So I sent him. I sent him the questions, and he was nice. He was really nice. I sent him the questions, and like within ten minutes, he gets within ten minutes, he got back to me, and but but all the questions were. <laughs> were like basically one or t- one two or three word answers. Well, in the interview that that I recorded with him just here, he's he opens up about a lot of less than positive aspects of some of some things like his very contentious working relationship with Bill Lustig, the fact that Jackie Chan basically stole the protector from him. Yeah, the uh, the protector I knew about, and uh, I I knew about that. I didn't know about the lustig stuff, uh, but with the protector, I because I kind of asked him a little bit about the protector, and again, he only answered in like with, with like one like one sentence or, or something like that. But uh, um, do that where it's you know it, it is much easier to it is much easier and much more you you open up a lot more in doing an audio interview than text. You know, it is easier to do an interview via audio right now we're going to play the audio in a minute but before this if anyone wants to listen to there are some very obvious questions i did not ask him here because in episode 24 of my other show lost in the static i'd already interviewed him i didn't want to just ask him the same questions over again for this show 
So go check out episode 24 of Lost in the Static, and then this one elaborates on a lot of that stuff, and he, I ask him a lot of different questions here. So let, let's, let's listen to the interview with James Glickenhaus. One of the biggest things in my mind right now is the Shapiro Glickenhaus Productions. Can you give us any info on the ones that are not on DVD, like Moontrap and Pledge Night? Those were films that were made by other producers that we picked up the distribution rights to in various foreign territories and on, um, through our video label which was distributed through Universal, MCA Universal. So after a period of time, uh, those rights probably expired and went back to the producers. So that's why they're not being re-released by us. Okay, because I just I watched Moontrap on VHS the other day, and I noticed the Shapiro Glickenhaus logo at the front, and I just went, oh, why isn't this on DVD? Yeah, we... Um, we didn't make the film. Some other producers made it, and we picked it up um, in post-production and had the rights to it for many years, and that uh, after a period of time, those rights lapsed, so that's the reason. Okay. Well, a couple of things I'd like to ask you about is some of the... We, we talked a lot the last time about the movies you directed, but there, there's a lot of really interesting movies you just produced. Can you tell me a little bit about like how you got involved with Maniac Cop? Well, I knew uh, Bill Lustig for many years. Um, as a New York filmmaker, we were in the we had offices in the same building, and we met. And it's at one point, uh, Bill came to me and asked me if um, I would produce this movie, and uh, I agreed to do it. Um, you know, Bill was an interesting guy. To be honest with you, after a while, I really kind of lost interest in um, some of the things he did and some of his business practices. So I, I really severed my relationship with him after Maniac Cop, and I sold the rights to uh, further Maniac Cop to another company because I just had no interest in dealing with Bill anymore. Well, was it the same way with Hentenlotter? Because I noticed you, you worked with Hentenlotter a lot on Frankenhooker and a few of the... No, no, uh, not at all. Uh, Frank is a friend. I like him very much. I admire him. I think he's a very creative filmmaker, and I enjoyed working with him and uh, continued to work with him for a long time. Well, he, he doesn't have... You know, and I, I disagree with this, so this is not an insult at all. He doesn't seem to have a lot of fond memories of Basket Case 3, are you in that same boat, or...? I'm not sure why, um, particularly. I, it certainly didn't have to do with me. I mean, Frank and I are friends to this day. I acted in one of his films that he did. I think the last film he did, Bad Biology. Well, um, I, I just meant, like, I read an interview where he said he's proud of Basket Case 1 and 2, and he kind of wishes he hadn't made 3. And I thought that was a really strange comment, because I thought 3 was a good movie. Yeah, I like three. I mean, who knows? You know, people, all of us say things in interviews that are maybe not completely thought out, or maybe he feels that way, but you could just get in touch with him and ask him directly. But it, it certainly wasn't the kind of thing where I had no interest in ever working with him again, which uh, did happen with Lustig. I mean, Lustig, I just lost all interest in. I, I didn't think he was particularly honorable, and um, I just had no interest in working with him again. 
Well, when it comes to like the Hentenlotter stuff, Bat the Basket Case movies and Frankenhooker, they have a huge cult following. And a lot of people don't seem to realize that, that you produced those. And when I pointed out to people, when I said I'm going to be talking to James Glickenhaus, they're like, oh, the exterminator guy? And I'm like, yeah, and also Frankenhooker. And they're like, oh, wow, really? Well, what happened was that Shapiro Glickenhaus, you know, we set that up to um, distribute other films than mine and to work with filmmakers who I enjoyed working with. And I certainly enjoyed working with Frank and I liked working on Frank and Hooker. Um, one of the songs from Frank and Hooker, Never Say No, I actually wrote and uh, performed on. Um, so I liked working with Frank a lot. It was just that uh, I didn't like working with Lustig and had no further interest in ever working with him again. Not to take this too negative, but a listener asked us to ask you about The Protector. And supposedly they read something you you didn't get along with Jackie Chan or you had problems with the studio on The Protector. You know, that's something that's, that sort of came out in a later interview with Jackie Chan. Um, I never felt that way at the time, and frankly, I'm not sure Jackie felt that way at the time. We had a difference of opinion in that I wanted to make a film that I felt could work in the world market, not just as a Hong Kong karate film, um, which is most of his films had been. Now, he was the star of The Protector. You know, Jackie went on and had some international success, but never, frankly, as a star. It was much more as a second banana with another actor like Owen Wilson or something like that. Um, and one of the problems with Jackie was he never spoke English very well. And he sort of could parrot the script, but he didn't really understand English well enough to understand the nuances of what a script was or acting in English. And I had some issues with that. But frankly, when we shot it, um, I enjoyed it. I think Jackie enjoyed it. He was very friendly. We worked well together. I think afterwards... He wanted to redo some of the films, uh, some of the fight scenes to make them more extravagant or more Hong Kong, if you will. And I had no interest in that, so I gave them the studio permission to go and bring in. I think Jackie expanded some of the fight scenes, and um, he made a quote Asian version of the film, which I saw and I didn't think was very good. You know, the fights. I mean, they they just got silly and boring. But be that as it may, you know, I think this is also one thing that gets blown up uh, beyond really what it was. I certainly had no problem with Raymond Chow or Golden Harvest and uh, any of the foreign distributors who uh, we sold the film to were very happy with it. And, you know, Jackie didn't like it for the Asian markets and he changed it a little, but... Uh, well, and yeah, you've had you've had a lot of success overseas. There are a lot of people. I mean, you told me before that the Exterminator just did huge numbers overseas, correct? Yeah, well, a lot of my films did very probably did more business overseas than they did in the United States. Although some were successful in the United States, uh, Slaughter of the Innocents did well in the United States. Um, the Shakedown did very well in the United States. Um, especially in home video and television, and um, The Exterminator did well. And The Soldier didn't do badly either uh, in the United States. So, But 
The Protector did much better in foreign territories, and other films I did did as well. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the DVDs that are out, and I'm not sure what the ownership status is on some of these films for you, but like McBain, the DVD is uh, lacking to to say anything else. It's a crappy full-frame, at least the copy I have, is a crappy full-frame print that looks like it was sourced right off of a VHS tape, and there are no extras. Yeah, that that's not the new one. There's a new version of McBain that's coming out that's going to be Blu-ray, really mastered well, and there is an entire narration by me on it. I just finished it, so that should be coming out soon. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that. It's better because I, I found it funny. A friend of mine used to own a video store, and they'd get all those you know preview tapes, mm-hmm. and the preview tape of McBain he has actually has a 10-minute making-of special on it, and I'm like, why isn't that on the DVD then? Yeah, I believe it will be. So you're just looking at a previous generation DVD that we recently redid and are re-releasing. Okay. Well, and then what's the status of Shakedown Cause, uh, or, or Blue Jean Cop as for our foreign listeners? Um, are we going to get a good special edition of that as well? Because I'd love to hear well, your that's thoughts. Well, on... the U.S. rights are owned by MCA Universal. So that's a question you'd really have to ask them. I have no control over it. Um, I don't own the U.S. rights to uh, Shakedown. We sold that off to Universal. Okay. Because I, I bought a foreign DVD of that under the title Blue Jean Cop, and that was also full frame. Yet I've seen copies of Shakedown on like Showtime or, or something like that widescreen, so I know there are widescreen prints out there. Yeah, I, I, this is something, once again, you'd have to ask Universal. I'm not sure why they did that, but... Uh, you know, look, it was a film they released, they had a success, they made money from it, but um, they have tons of films, and I'm not sure that in the scheme of things it was all that important to them. I think it's one of, I think it's a great film. I think it's one of your best films, personally. I, I think I think Peter Weller and Sam Elliott are, are just amazing in the film, and it, there are all these little nuances that you put in the movie, like just at the beginning of the film, when he's listening to, I think it's Jimi Hendrix, and his much younger girlfriend has no idea who it is, that sort of exasperated sigh he lets out. It, that's a very Glickenhaus little thing. Oh, yeah. No, I like that film a lot. And um, I'm very proud of it. And it did real well. And, uh, and Universal still sells... Uh, sells it on video and they put it on television and stuff so but they have the rights in perpetuity in the u.s on it well and then also that was uh, you told me last time one of the last films to be shot on the old 42nd street can you talk about shooting there a little bit well you know the the deuce was a lot different than it is today i mean now it's very disney-esque and uh, retail oriented and tourist oriented back then it was really kind of uh a little bit gritty and uh, impoverished and um, you know poor New Yorkers went there to see double features and eat at uh, fast food restaurants I mean now people from Kansas come to shop in the M&M store so it's a bit different um, and I think the shakedown really is if you look at that chase scene that we did at the New Amsterdam theater I don't think there's anything like that anymore existent at the old 42nd street did you run into any problems while shooting there with, with some of the, since it was not the best neighborhood with some of the the locals as it is? Well, it was a massive operation. I mean, we had 200 police and we shut down 42nd Street between Broadway 
and um, 8th Avenue, which uh, was, you know, a huge on-location shoot. And you have to remember, this was really before huge use of um, CGI and special effects that were computer-generated. So we actually shot that. I mean, there's no special effects um, that where we computer-generated images. All those stunts we did, all those crashes we did. So it was sort of the, the end of an era for that type of filmmaking. Did the co cops cooperate with you? I mean, did they give you any crap over, oh, I can't believe we have to be down here for a movie? No, no, they lie. The, the, the movie and, and television division of the New York City Police was great. I had a great relationship with them. They loved working on my films, and they were very helpful and, and, and really helped uh, all levels of filmmakers make movies. Well, and then uh, you, you worked in New York a lot, uh, shooting on location. Did you run into the same kind of cooperation with shooting The Exterminator, since that was so many years prior? I did. I mean, uh, John Lindsay set up the movie and television division of the uh, police, and it would be other mayors who followed. Uh, Dinkins and Giuliani uh, followed with very good, very strong film commissioners and um, liaisons with the police and other people. And we had a wonderful experience shooting on location in New York. It was expensive, but it was terrific. There's that one scene in The Exterminator before Ginty picks up the prostitute that's been burned, and he's walking down. Did you get everyone's permission? Because some of those people don't really look like they know that they're being shot for a movie, some of the background people. Well, here, here's the thing with it. Um, so a lot of those people who look that way are, in fact, our extras, and they were scripted and directed by me. So even though it looks that way, we had a lot of extras on the scene, and there was no one who was featured who wasn't, in fact, um, one of our extras. But the, the other people, you know, if you're in a public place and you post that you're filming, they don't have the same right of privacy that they would if you went into a private place and shot them. Now, with The Exterminator and Robert Ginty, what was it like working with him? Because he seems like one of those actors that is just, he, that he's on board for anything is what it seems like with Ginty. Uh, Bob was, uh, <clears throat> you know, a very good actor. I think he did a terrific job in The Exterminator. Um, and I think he did a terrific job in coming home and in his television work with uh, Robert Conrad. Uh, and he was up for anything, and I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, when The Exterminator was done, I really wanted to move on to something else, and I really wasn't interested in, in making a sequel to it. And the person who had uh, worked with me on The Exterminator was interested, so... I sold him the rights, and he went on and made Exterminator 2. And I actually never worked again with Ginty, but I, I like Bob, and I stayed friendly with him over the years, and I certainly would have worked with him. Um, the sad thing about Bob was is that he had a tremendous success in Exterminator. And personally, I think that if he had, if he had, had a better agent and slowed down and relaxed, he could have gotten some very big, important acting gigs. But I think he immediately capitalized on that success and made a bunch of fairly terrible movies, including Exterminator 2. And uh, I think that hurt his career. Do you think, like you just brought up Exterminator 2, do you think that movie, and I, I'm not going to say it's a bad movie, but it's definitely not as good as Exterminator. Do you, does that irritate you at all, that, that it sort of gets lumped in with that? Because I see a lot of reviews online that go, why would Glickenhaus make a sequel? And they don't seem to realize... He didn't. 
No, it doesn't really irritate me. It is what it is. I mean, if people are that stupid that they think that I made Exterminator 2, what can I tell you? Uh, now, are, are are we done with James Glickenhaus, or is there another picture in your future that you're going to direct? Because, and I say this completely honestly, your films have a certain style to them that even if you don't read the credits, if you miss the first five minutes of McBain or the first five minutes of Exterminator, and you come in, after about ten minutes, you go, this feels like a Glickenhaus production. Well, I think that's a good thing. I mean, even this summer in August um, in at the Tribeca Y, they're going to screen uh, The Soldier and McBain. And they, earlier in the year, screened The Exterminator and Shakedown. And it was great to talk to the audience and the young filmmakers starting out and who I think felt the way you just uh, talked about. Um, you know, I do have some ideas. I am writing a script now. So uh, who knows? You know, if I can get a script that I'm happy with, it's certainly possible I would direct another film. And there's no reason that I couldn't or wouldn't. Um, but I just don't want to make a film just for the sake of making one. I mean, if I have a story that I feel is worth telling, um, I'll direct a film. But just to direct one for the sake of doing it, uh, I'm a little bit past that. W would you direct it in the way you did, say, Shakedown and the Exterminator, or would you would you use CGI if, if you could, if it was easier than doing a stunt? Because I, I just have a feeling that, that you'd go, no, I'd prefer actually blowing up a car. Yeah, I think that's probably a fair statement. Uh, I mean, I, I think that the problem with CGI is is that it can create images that are so fantastic that nothing shocks or surprises people anymore the way um, a real stunt or real explosion does. And um, I think in the future, real stunts and, and real explosions will just be, you know, like watching a silent Charlie Chaplin film. But that's okay because I really enjoy the way real stunts and real special effects look. And if I made another film, I'd, I'd make it the same way for sure. Well, and then I'm looking over your filmography, and there are two films you produced that I haven't seen. Can you tell us a little bit about Ring of Steel and Tough and Deadly? Yeah, those were um, action-adventure films um, starring, I think one was starring uh, Billy Blanks, and uh, one was starring some guys uh, who were very good with swords. And at Shapiro Glickenhaus, we, we produced those films. I was involved in them a little, but not to a great extent. And it was really, quite honestly, to keep um, our distribution machine going. You know, it's a catch-22. If you set up a, an independent distributor, you need product. And you become a victim to you have to produce product to keep the machine going. And quite frankly, at the end, that was one reason that I moved on. I just was no longer interested in keeping this huge machine going uh, for the sake of keeping it going. And um, I had other things and I could do, and I went off and did them. Well, when when a movie says produced, like the Hentenlotter stuff or Maniac Cop, or, or whatnot, how involved are you actually there on the set every day, or does it vary from picture to picture? Well, I think that in, in all of them I was listed as an executive producer, so I wasn't online on the set every day. But I was involved in them. With Frank, I really had a good collaborative 
a relationship. And um, I enjoyed working with him and giving him my two cents worth. And, you know, I wasn't offended if he didn't take my advice. And I think, you know, Frank um, responded to that. Uh, with other people, I was involved in the editing of them and the casting and, and the scripts and stuff. And I was involved, but um, I didn't make those films. Those aren't my films. There are some, there are other people's films. So out of your films, obviously The Protector and Shakedown we've covered are owned by somebody else. Do you own all the rest of your, your films that you can release? Yeah, I own Shakedown, just not the U.S. rights. I own the worldwide rights to it. I own McBain, the worldwide rights, and uh, The Exterminator. The Soldier, um, we're not sure who owns that. It, it used to be Avco Embassy, and then it was... Dino De Laurentiis, and then he went into bankruptcy. And where that library went for a while, it was with Warner Brothers. But I'm not sure if it still is. We're we're trying to figure that out. Because I I think it would be great if you could reacquire all of your films and release a James Glickenhaus collection. I think, at least I know, I'd be first in line to buy it. Yeah, well, we we've sort of done that in that we've you know we are doing working um, and have re-released in the new. Uh, the Exterminator, and we are doing Bane, and we're doing the Basket Case films that I feel very proud of, and we're doing um, we'll, Slaughter of the Innocents will probably do, and Time Master will do. So from that sense, those films will get out in a new great version. Well, when can we look for that McBain? Does that have a release date yet? I just uh, they were just in New York, and I and I narrated the. Um, my commentary on the whole film, so I suspect it'll be coming out soon. I, I actually really look forward to hearing that. I really enjoyed your commentary on The Exterminator. Great. Well, I, I enjoy doing it. I think it's important to give people an, an idea of what you were trying to accomplish. Thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us and being so open with, with some of the le- less than uh, positive questions I asked. <laughs> Oh, not at all. I mean, uh, I'm very proud of what my films were, and I'm glad that people, you know, 30 years later are still interested in them. And uh, I have no problem with criticism or if people like them or don't like them. I mean, I I made these films for myself and my friends and people who understood them, and if other people didn't, that's fine. So, Brian, have you seen any of Glickenhaus's flicks? Uh, only a couple of them. I I, I know I've seen uh, the Exterminator with uh, with Brad. I think the only other one I've seen is McBain. Maybe Did you see that kids movie. Time Master. T- Time Master. Yeah, Time Master. Actually, I've never seen. That I've one. never seen that one. I tell him. Yeah, I told him that in the interview that that's the only one of his flicks I have not seen. That doesn't sound familiar at all. Shakedown is is one that you absolutely have to see. Peter Shakedown's w- awesome. Yeah, Peter Weller as as a prosecutor and Sam Elliott as a burnt out co- corrupt cop on the edge. It actually ends with a an airplane flying into a boat and exploding. And like I said there's a there's a there's a firefight on the deuce and yeah. Pe- Peter Weller gets tortured by corrupt cops and it's it's a pretty damn awesome movie. Yeah, that movie's great. I and for our foreign listeners, the movie is called Blue Jean Cop for no apparent reason. <laughs> well, no, because it's out on DVD there. We don't we don't yeah. have it on DVD here because MCA it's not on DVD. No, MCA Universal. I mean, the, Showtime. I saw it on Showtime recently in a beautiful widescreen print, but it's yeah. not on DVD. I don't get that. 
Brad, let's actually talk about G.I. Joe a little bit and the fact of why we're not getting it. For those of you that might not have seen the story, you all heard the story about G.I. Joe, Rise of the Cobra, being pushed back a year so they could give it post-production 3D. That's a bull story. Well, apparently it got even worse. That's Uh not the full reason. Now, this is not a a spoiler because this is a pretty poorly kept secret. Channing Tatum as Duke died in the first ten minutes of the movie. Good. They practically show that happening in the trailer. Exactly, yeah. That would never be a secret. Well, test audiences, and we know that's never a good way to start off something about a movie, is test audiences think. Test audiences like his character, so the studio's pulling the movie and they're giving the director more money to shoot a bunch of Duke scenes and have Duke live throughout the movie and be now one of the main characters. I would take my Channing the Plank Tatum. I agree with you about Channing Tatum to a damn T, to a big T made out of freaking wood with absolutely no charisma. Yeah, yeah, let's leave this in charge of a freaking test audience, the biggest group of dumbasses you could possibly assemble together. Let me guess, these are the same people that applauded Transformers 3 when it ended. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure they brought their f***ing helmets with them to the screening. There is a reason why he was killed off in the first part of this movie, because he sucked in the first one. He is the worst mainstream leading action guy I've seen in Forever. One of the worst of all time. I'm going to say it. Well, and then, see, I like the fact that this is already starting to blow up in their face. Not only uh-huh. not only the backlash of people going, you know what, I'm not going to go see this new Channing Tatum version of the movie, but because this was pulled only three weeks before the movie was coming out, they've already got the action figures on the shelves. The comic books are, are adaptations are already out. The video game is already on its way out. The puzzles and t-shirts are already out. None of those distributors are willing to pull their product. So when this mo- so basically all this product is now out there with no movie to support it and when the movie comes out there'll be no products to support it. What did they think was going to happen? He wasn't in this movie. It's because people hated him in the first one. Hasbro actually released a statement. They they just outright told the studio, "No, we're not they they were asked to pull the action figures and hold them for a year." And they're like, no, we're not doing that. We've got millions of dollars tied up in this. We're not pulling them. Any way that they can salvage this and still have a good name for themselves. Like, I mean, even if the scenes that they film with him are just movie magic, it's just gold, the best performance you'll ever see. This movie just, yeah, I mean, it's not going to happen. He's talking hypothetical, Brad, okay? He's talking (laughs) hypothetical. Very, very hypothetical. But, I mean, even if, if it goes off perfectly to integrate these scenes and have it not look like a Godfrey home movie, even if everything pulls off great, they, it still has the stigma of the studio pulled it three weeks before it was supposed to come out, gave us the biggest just bullshit excuse for why they're doing it, which even if that was the only excuse, that just comes down to plain and simple greed. I mean, there's there's no way that they can re-release this at this point and save face. I mean, they might as well just say, you know what, we screwed up, and we'll put it out next month. Whatever. People will have so much more respect for them if they do that. You know what this is probably going to look like? You remember Best Defense with Dudley Moore and Eddie Murphy? <laughs> hey, my, my, okay, 
I liked Best Defense, though. The Eddie Murphy stuff was actually really damn funny. Yeah, yeah, the Eddie Murphy stuff was, but it's the same, not exactly the same, but you have a movie that's a Dudley Moore movie, and so Eddie Murphy's really popular at the time, so hey, let's insert Eddie Murphy into this already finished movie. And it looked very awkward. It did. It, it, was, it was literally like these two, there was two different movies happening simultaneously. Both movies were interesting, but they didn't uh-huh. go together. The, the other question I've got is, are we ever going to see the original version, the version that was meant to come out in three weeks? Are they going to release that on... I'd love to see that version come out on DVD as well, like they did with the two Exorcist prequels. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's got to be. With only three weeks before release, somebody has a print of this movie. I'm just waiting for this thing to pop up online, because you know it's going to pop up on the bootleg oh, dude, sites. Totally. Like, yeah, see, I... That- that was my thoughts on it too. Is yeah, it's it's so close to release. There had to be at least one theater somewhere, a distribution house somewhere that had the cans in their hand ready to just move. I mean, there's got to be screen. There, there has to be something, right? And it, it's it's going to pop that's... up on the net. And I'm still interested. If both versions are released, I, that's the only way I'd watch this movie now is to compare and contrast whether. Whether they really wrecked the movie, or if they already, or if they just wrecked an already bad movie. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm not going to the theater to see this thing. I'm not. I'm not. I have no respect for a movie that does this. None. None whatsoever. Especially with someone like Channing and Tatum. Well, then I'd really? like to. I'd like to hear his thoughts on this because he's got to be seeing the backlash of going. Really, your ego that you wanted to star in this movie? Because he outright, in an earlier interview, said he was a little disappointed he was killed so quick in the in the second one. So your ego is costing The Rock and Bruce Willis and all of them their movie so you uh-huh. can get more screen time? Yeah. How can anyone respect Tatum after this? I mean, even his peers. It, it kind of baffles me. Like, you said that the studio agreed to... Uh to give them some more funds to get this going. But, I mean, how much more funds do you need? Because, I mean, you're going to have to obviously compensate Channing Tatum and every other actor that you're going to need to be in these scenes with him. I'm sure that you're going to have to have at least a few more scenes with a couple of the other big names like like The Rock or like Bruce Willis. So, I mean, your, your money's already going through the roof here. You've got to do almost complete rewrite if you're going to have him be through the rest of the movie. If he was supposed to die in the first ten minutes... I mean, it's just, you might as well just scrap the movie and just start from from square one again. I mean, I, how this is going to be... insane. A, a friend of mine said what they might do is basically like have Duke have his own storyline. Like he gets kidnapped and then they just shoot all this footage of him trying to escape from a Cobra compound or something. So he can basically be in his own little movie within this movie. That's what I thought they would probably do. And honestly, I mean, taking taking that dipshit Channing Tatum out of it, looking at it from from a writing standpoint, you know, somebody who's put in a position where they have to write this character back into a movie who was killed 10 minutes in and the movie's in post-production right now, that's the only thing I can think of is he survives and has his own subplot in it. Whether it's he gets kidnapped by Cobra, like you said, or he's... He's stranded somewhere and has to make it back to some kind of civilization or something like that. I don't know. That the only thing I logistically think of, but there, without there, re- without reshooting the rest of the movie. 
And uh, yeah, his career is actually kind of baffling to me. How does he get these roles? He has one of the, the best agents in Hollywood. I used to say Hayden Christensen did. Now I'm saying it's Channing Tatum. He's got the best agent in all of Hollywood. He has, he has to. The best, or he has the best dick-sucking lips in all of Hollywood. You've heard us bitching. You've heard the Glickenhouse interview. Where can we find Brad Jones? Uh, you can find me at uh, thecinemasnob.com. We have an open we have an open blog site too called HuffingtonDave.com. And uh, and Brian, I'm sure you're some sort of tag along, huh? Well, you can find me over at uh, my brand new website, thecinemasnob.com. You can find me at 1201beyond.com, 1201beyond at gmail.com, my weekly column, Sanity is Razor Thin, at geekjuicemedia.com, and my monthly column, The Shadows of Pop Culture, if you're in the Green Bay area, in Scene Magazine. All right, night, guys. I know you got some midnight screenings to hit.